Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the study of religion and liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. This week on the podcast, we cover a topic that pulls together a lot of different ideas being debated today, including liberalism, America's founding ideas, and the meaning of democracy, namely the American experiment. In 1995, Pope John Paul II spoke to a crowd in Maryland during a Eucharist celebration, saying, quote, democracy cannot be sustained without a shared commitment to certain moral truths about the human person and the human community. The basic question before a democratic society is this, how ought we to live together, unquote. This question has proved important throughout history and has left some people wondering just how neutral our founding ideas were and whether particular faith traditions, especially Catholicism, are compatible with the American political order. So what defines our American political order? And is it at odds with Catholic social teaching? John C. Pinero joins our podcast this week to break it down. He's a professor of history and the founding director of Catholic Studies at Aquinas College. He's also the author of the newest book in Acton's bookshop called The American Experiment in Ordered Liberty. If you are interested in buying this book or just learning more about the topic being discussed today, I've linked some articles and some books that I think you would be really interested in in our show notes. And you can go read those at blog.acton.org. Also, if you like this podcast and you want to help us reach even more listeners, you can do that by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, and I'm the librarian and a research associate at the Acton Institute. Today, my guest is John C. Panero, professor of history and founding director of Catholic Studies at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Today, John and I will be discussing his new book, The American Experiment in Ordered Liberty, the most recent publication in the Acton Institute's Christian Social Thought series. It's an excellent contribution to the ongoing debate on the compatibility of Catholicism and the American experiment. John, thank you for joining us, and welcome to Acton Line. Yeah, thank you for having me. John, you open your book with an excellent quote from uh, Pope uh, St. John Paul II, uh, quote, America has always wanted to be a land of the free. Today, the challenge facing America is to find freedom's fulfillment in the truth, end quote. That desire to be the land of the free has often been frustrated for many peoples, and for Catholics in particular. Um, you've written extensively on this elsewhere in your book, Missionaries of Republicanism, A Religious History of the Mexican-American War. Uh, what is the nature of the argument made by many throughout American history that Catholicism is incompatible with the American experiment? Well, first off, I, you know, I appreciate your question because— to discuss any kind of any kind of answer, uh, we really have to provide historical context when we're talking about these things, particularly with Catholics and freedom. That address was given by by John Paul in an American ballpark, which I thought was particularly apropos because that's just a very American thing, baseball. And he did a number of things in that address, such as talking about equality and Abraham Lincoln, etc. Uh, but when it comes to anti-Catholicism, that that kind of came with the with the first with the first settlers, with the Puritans in, in English North America. But what I talk about in Missionaries of Republicanism is how by the 1840s and 50s, for most Americans, they would define American as being pretty much a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And what that meant during the Mexican War was just particularly vile things said against Mexicans and as well as Catholics and kind of conflating 
everything bad with everything Catholic. And the worst of all was to say that by its very nature, Catholicism was inimical to republicanism. That is, it was just the opposite of, of liberty, that to be a good Catholic was therefore to be a, a bad Republican. And Republican in this sense, of course, meaning the democratic, yeah. opposing representative government. There's also a strain in Catholic thought itself, which has been critical of the American experiment. Uh, most prominently, um, recently, Patrick Deneen, a professor at Notre Dame, in his book, Why Liberalism Failed. What's the general thrust of, of those sorts of arguments? This is one of the oddities I found with these uh, recent Catholic critics of the compatibility of American democracy and Catholicism, and that they've, they've really kind of gone back to what Lyman Beecher and Samuel F. B. Morse and some of the leading anti-Catholics were saying back in the 1840s that I talk about in the Missionaries of Republicanism book. What Deneen says is that not only was our country founded— I use the term hard founding in, in the new book for, for Acton. Not only did it have this hard founding, that founding was based on such an anthropological error of this radical individualism of the human person that it's pretty much just a lost cause and that it, Catholics in, in some ways can have nothing, nothing to do with it, that Catholicism could not be compatible with the kind of order in America. And I, I would argue that if he's right about the founding, then maybe that would be true. But in the book, I tried to show that he's, he's wrong about the founding, that there's just too much determinism in that argument. One of, one of the key sort of ideas behind a lot of these debates is, is what the American experiment itself is. And in your book, you discuss the notion of it being viewed either as a creedal or ideological project on the one hand, or on the other hand, as, as sort of an organic development from the past, a, a sort of genealogical uh, phenomena. How did this debate inform your way in trying to approach the compatibility of Catholicism and the American experiment from a historical perspective, rooting it in those sort of actual events? When I first thought about addressing that question, I thought, wow, am I going to write a book about the entirety of American history up mm -hmm. to the present? And I thought, well, in 20,000 words, I don't think so. I don't think I'd be capable of that. Somebody might be, but, but not I. And so the more I thought about it, the more I focused in on the, the founding period and this question of of a founding. And if we are founded on some kind of creedal blueprint and the blueprint is drawn incorrectly, then uh, perhaps with a bad foundation, then the whole building can crumble. But, but what if we're not? And to what degree are we? And to what degree are we not? John Paul seemed to think in his Camden Yards address that we do have a creed. G.K. Chesterton uh, argued likewise, and I quote Chesterton a lot in this book about uh, being a nation founded on a creed, and that creed had to do with human equality and equality under the law and resting that equality in the divine. But there's, there's another aspect to that creed, and that is to say, well, how did the creed come to be? Did it come from only from Enlightenment liberals and our nation is entirely a creation of Enlightenment liberalism and the worst aspects of that liberalism? Or did it uh, evolve? Was it the fruit of long organic growth in the English political and moral and legal traditions? And I, I opt really for the, the latter in that book. And, and you trace that out through a series of, of sort of successive periods in American history um, and then also, you know, key documents throughout that history. But the early history of, of British North America, which you spent some time in in the book, was famously described by Edmund Burke as one shaped by Britain's salutary neglect. 
How did this affect the religious life and practice of the, of the early American colonies? When we think of neglect, we generally would think of it as something very negative. If you neglect a child or neglect your garden and the, you know, the bad things that would ensue. But when he called the neglect salutary, that is beneficial, what he meant was that for well over 100 years, 140 years in the case of some colonies, that the English peoples of North America had operated well on their own with no nobility, no bishops of the Church of England, no direct control from the crown or parliament, and that somehow that neglect had had a beneficial effect. And the effect was these people had come to North America in the first place because they loved liberty and were seeking economic freedom and religious freedom or a combination of the two or just really a, a chance to prosper and own their own property. And they were allowed to develop without the kind of regulation and overweening government and corrupt taxation uh, that was had in England. And 140 years later, when England finally decided to try to rule them directly, they said no, and that's the revolution. But it makes a revolution much more than a tax revolt and much more than somebody sitting down one day and, and reading, reading a few Enlightenment tracts and deciding, you know, I think we should have a revolution the way a Marxist revolutionary might in the 20th century once they see the blueprint for their perfect society. These people had lived free and knew the benefits of freedom and had felt them. They hadn't just read about them. And it was a very diverse society, um, religiously in particular, and all sorts of different um, relationships between church and state throughout. Um, we had a great discussion uh, earlier on the podcast with uh, Alan Crippen of the Faith and Liberty Discovery Center on William Penn and some of his inspirations and that model in Pennsylvania. And there was also Catholic settlement in Maryland. Um, so it was a very very eclectic group. And the end of that period of salutary neglect led to tensions between Britain and the American colonies and ultimately the Declaration of Independence. How is freedom grounded in the Declaration in both natural rights and the English common law tradition? And is this notion of freedom compatible with the Catholic understanding of finding for freedom's fulfillment in truth? When we talk about the, the common law tradition, we're talking about the, the law that's common to all in England. And one of the legal questions was, does that common law pass across the Atlantic with the settlers? And the new tax laws of the 1760s and 1770s and the ways in which men would be punished for disobeying them, such as trial without jury, for instance, being held without evidence, all, all went against the common law tradition. What the Declaration itself was part of was a very long tradition of proclamations and declarations against higher authority and in particular against kings. And many of the things Jefferson said had been said against past kings. And so, you know, once again, we see in the Declaration not an ideological moment in time, though there's some borrowing. There's some borrowing of particular language and of the Lockean language, of course, of life, liberty, and property being transformed into life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's some borrowing and use of that, and that's kind of just what's in the air. But this is a very long-grown tradition that Jefferson's participating in, and the result is, what he's saying, is that our liberties come not from the state and not from the king and not from parliament, but ultimately from God alone. And because of that, the state, therefore, has no right to take them away. The state can, but it would not be able to do so justly. Yeah. And there's, 
there's nothing in what I've just said, I think, that the Catholic tradition or Catholic social teaching would, would disagree with in terms of the, the purpose of human freedom. And there's, there's a great uh, moment in your book where you talk about how this, um, a lot of the Lockean language itself becomes incorporated into the common law tradition. And its reception is not merely mediated from Locke to Jefferson, but there's already been an introduction and incorporation into that earlier common law tradition of a lot of that language that you also find in Locke. Yeah, historians like to talk, we call it the, the climate of opinion. And, you know, you can say, well, these kind of ideas are just, they're just in the air and it's what people are saying. And we don't always want to think that every every necessary cause is a sufficient cause. And we want to make sure we don't confuse that. And I think that's what that's what the critics of American democracy do because, because of course, our democracy currently is allowing terrible things and has been used to operate against religious liberty and against America's best traditions. But to say that that's built into the system and was fated to be, I think, is something else entirely. Yeah. Are the understandings of religious liberty as understood by by the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom, which Jefferson was also an author of, um, and, and the First Amendment, are those the same, I guess, first? And then the second would that would either or both of those be examples of the religious indifferentism that was condemned by Pope Gregory XVI and Marari Voss? In the Pope, that was in the early 1830s, Marari Voss, and the concern was that Religious liberty really masks religious indifferentism, and of, of course it can. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the reason I go through the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom and then the First Amendment and talk about religious freedom so much in the book, because this seems to be, and I, th- I think is, one of the real American contributions to the development of Catholic thinking and Catholic doctrine on religious liberty that resulted eventually in Dignitatis Humanae at, at the Second Vatican Council. Uh, the Americans, unlike the Europeans, seem to, except for those horrible cases that I, I detailed in my, my other book on mm-hmm. anti-Catholicism and cases of violence against uh, Mormons in particular, uh, except for those cases, it's kind of a good test case for religious liberty in terms of looking at the United States even now as one of the most religious countries in the Western world and looking at confessional states even now as often the least religious with the churches the least filled. And that somehow, somehow religious liberty is more productive of, of authentic religion and confessional states and one church states are, are not. Yeah. Jefferson, on the other hand, though, I say in the book something like, you know, when he happened upon the truth, he would usually know it. But truth wasn't always his ultimate goal. And we know, we know Jefferson could be a radically secular. And we know his opinion of this wall of separation, as he termed it, which has come to be a a phrase that uh, many Americans, unfortunately, think is right there in the Constitution and part of the design of the First Amendment, which was really designed, the First Amendment, to prevent the new national government from establishing a a single church, as the Church of England had been uh, established, beginning with Henry VIII. The thinking on religious liberty, I think, is it's so much more fulsome and well-rounded and insightful uh, once Catholics start thinking about it. But we don't want to neglect Jefferson either because of, because of his irreligious beliefs. And we don't, want to, we don't want to fail to see what's well and good in these kind of efforts that he's recognizing in Virginia 
that uh, religious liberty itself is a good thing. He thinks error. He thinks uh, if if you allow error to flourish, if you use reason, the truth will the truth will um, win every time. The popes are very concerned about that in the 1800s. In fact, uh, uh, one of them I quote in the book says something like, uh, "You know, so you publish uh, 99 books that are horrible and filled with untruth, and then one book that has the truth." The cost-benefit analysis is not there as far as the pope is concerned. That's, that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's hard for a 19th century pope to get his mind around any of the positive aspects of religious liberty because there's no personal experience with it in Europe. In fact, there's quite the opposite in the various French revolutions and as anti-Catholic and as anti-religious as they were. Yeah. And you mention uh, in a great part of the book sort of Orestes Bronson's efforts to sort of articulate the differences between what's going on in America and what was going on then in France and in, and in other places in Europe where you have an anti-clericalism, you have an, a, a very aggressive secularism. Um, and, and where it is, what comes to be known as Americanism is really more prominent in France than in America. Mm-hmm. And this condemnation of Americanism at the end of the 19th century is more of a, combi- a condemnation of what's going on in France. Yeah. Cardinal Gibbons, on the other hand, goes to uh, Rome and just says great things about the United States. And this this is almost at the same time the, the Catholic bishops of America decided that every Catholic parish should have its own school because the secular schools in the country, the public schools, are by default Protestant. Mm-hmm. And therefore, to pass on the kinds of things one ought to pass on in a school, more than just reading, writing, and arithmetic, they need Catholic schools. And he said, this is great. We can do this in America. We have so much liberty. I mean, he has, he has only positive things to say when he goes to Rome. Another thing you touch on in the book, in the book is, is, the, is the process of drafting the Constitution itself. And a lot of the debates between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists about the nature of government power, extent, and that sort of stuff. And you bring that in dialogue with um, notions of subsidiarity and Catholic social teaching. Um, could you expand a little bit on that and, and, and see how, how looking at those debates you see some of the similar sort of conversations that, that are happening in, in Catholic social teaching? The, the compendium on, uh, on social doctrine, which I use quite a bit uh, in the book, talks about democracy as the fruit of subsidiarity. That is that kind of participation. You will not find the word subsidiarity mentioned in the late 1700s in the United States. But what you will find is the, the practice of it and the living out of it. And so during the constitutional debates especially and during the debate over the constitution later between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, we see both sides arguing for some kind of some kind of vision of a of a country that's decentralized and where families do most everything and up the ladder from there to local government to these state governments and then finally to this new US government that's been created and the greatest debate is is over how much that new government is is going to do and the anti-federalists are afraid of a number of things and rightly so and one of them is uh, the lack of a Bill of Rights and the lack of an explicit guarantee for religious religious liberty. And it's to them that we owe the many, many amendments that were sent um, that were sent to propose uh, uh, religious liberty and conscientious objection, as it turns out, uh, under the new constitution. So on this question, we kind of began talking about, you know, whether or not America is a sort of ideological propositional construct or, or rather a genealogy. 
And having realized that those two things, that the, the, the genealogy, that the historical context is important, that that is sort of, you know, the determining factor, even though various thinkers, various single personages and authors contribute to this experiment, it's not any one person's design. Um, and that the American Republic is is the product of many different currents. Um, is, is the notion of freedom that comes to be embodied um, as the American sort of notion with freedom compatible with the church's notion of freedom as articulated? This is uh, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, paragraph uh, 1731, uh, that, quote, freedom is the, pow- is the power rooted in reason and will to act or not to act, to do this or that, and so to perform deliberate actions on one's, own res- of, on one's own responsibility. By free will, one shapes one's own life. Human freedom is a force for growth and maturity and truth and goodness. It attains its perfection when directed toward God, our beatitude. Is that something... We tend, we tend to think of the notions of, you know, they're, they're sort of value-free notions of freedom out there. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is the American notion of freedom, does it have that either, either room for those sort of valueful expressions of freedom, or is it itself a form of, of that sort of freedom that seeks to promote, you know, uh, I think human it, flourishing? I think it's certainly, you know, at the time of the founding and as the country developed and in the Christian milieu as, as it was, there was certainly quite a bit of room for that. I mean, increasingly, there's clearly less room in that uh, the U.S. government the past 10 or 15 years especially uh, has treated treated secularism as an orthodoxy in, in its own right and perpetuated in ways that if it, if it was a church, it would not be allowed to do so. It would fall under the heading of religion. Uh, so this, this idea that secularism is somehow neutral is a, is a false one. And I think uh, most of your listeners will already think that or know that or ha- have heard that. But when we talk about compatibility with that, that really large section of the, of the catechism that you read, and I address that at, at length in the book, it, it always gets back to what, what we really mean by compatibility. I mean, can a Catholic live a Catholic life in the United States and fully express his or her religion in all the ways, especially beyond worship, uh, that are possible? And the answer historically seems to have been yes, and even during the tough times, the church burnings in 1844, for instance, those are mob activities, and they're not ordered by any government, and they're not called for somehow under law or constitutional interpretation. And I mean, there's no amendment to the Constitution that, you know, recommends this sort of thing to save liberty, but there are arguments, and the people argue, they debate. Bishop John Hughes is debating publicly anti-Catholic figures. Other bishops are doing the same thing. There's polemical fights with Orestes Brownson and others in the nation's newspapers. That's a pretty unique thing in the world, really. I mean, to debate the first and last things openly and, and see what happens to the, to the arguments. Uh, so as, as best I could say it, we have to talk about that, uh, you know, no, no polity on this earth is going to be fully compatible with that divine vision. But, but certainly there's much space and there has been in the American tradition for these things. No, and there's, um, there's an excellent – the way you, you close out your book is some, is some reflections on uh, President Washington 
and sort of the relationship between virtue and liberty um, in his administration. So what if you could, what if there are, are real examples of virtue that aren't metaphorical mm-hmm. and that are not to be found in parables, but in the, the actions of real human beings such as Washington as general voluntarily relinquishing his, his authority and his power as general at the end of the Revolutionary War? And so I thought to, to really end a study of the, the founding era in light of Catholic social teaching and this compatibility question, we ought to then, we ought to then talk about George Washington who shows with his administration that, that prudence can actually be practiced, mm-hmm. that practical wisdom and, uh, can, be, can be applied to statecraft in the early United States. Uh, you see this especially in his farewell address talking about dealing honestly with all nations, trading with all of them, and, uh, and we leave them alone. They probably leave us alone. That's easier said in the 1790s, of course, than it is in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, but the, the good sense of it is, is there. So I, I just use Washington as kind of a test case. And here again is another man who it would be difficult to define as an Orthodox Christian, being unable as he was honestly to re- recite the creed. I don't think that's that important to the argument we're trying to look at here, which is the compatibility in a nation like that of Catholics to live free and the right kind of freedom, freedom in the truth um, o- over the long haul. Yeah. And as, so as, as difficult as things are now, we ought to look back to the founding period to make sure that we know this wasn't an experiment that was, that was doomed to fail but actually had quite a bit going to it and, is, and has not been sucked into the progressive morass until recently. And if we started comparing around the world, I know that there's, there's much worse things happening to Christians than, than dirty looks yeah. and, uh, you know, being frowned upon, et cetera, uh, elsewhere in the world in the United States. I, I think that that's an important perspective. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a wonderfully encouraging thing um, to look back and to see a time where liberty can be, can be ordered to virtue and can be ordered to the human It God. can be done. And mm-hmm. see, the, the problem with ideologies is that, you know, they talk about what ought to be done, but they're usually things that haven't been done. And if they've been tried, they haven't created heaven on earth, but they've created hell on earth. And, uh, but, you know, here we have some, here we have some examples then. Uh, if, if you were to talk to my friends, they would find it unbelievable that I could be this optimistic and, and yeah. positive, as you say. But, but what I've sensed in the, in the critics, especially the Catholic critics, is this, is this despair. And, mm-hmm. I, and, you know, there's a reason the church has always classified despair as a, as a mortal sin. I mean, it, it kills intellectual endeavor. It kills, it kills everything. Yeah. And uh, so I think uh, I, 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 kind of, I, I try to be encouraging at the end of the book and say, and quote St. Paul and talk about uh, redeeming this period, but we, we can't do it by trying to live in the 13th century. We, ha- we have to live where we are and work with what we have and try to uh, leaven the culture and redeem it and, and sanctify it. And this is, in fact, what Catholics have always done. Uh, I, I think that, you know, the early Christians had it worse in the Roman Empire, and the church still flourished. Well, you've given in, in, this, in this book not only an, an informed historical but informed theological reasons for hope uh, for us uh, going forward. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us here today, and uh, it's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. I was glad to be here. Thank you so much for listening today. 
Here at Acton, our podcast team is working hard to make a great show for you every week, but I know that we couldn't do it without you. Help us make an even better podcast and reach us at actonline at acton.org. I respond to all of the emails and I read all of your feedback. It really matters to me. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Also, if you have any friends who you think would enjoy listening to Act in Line or learn more about the work that Acton Institute does, please share this podcast with them. You can subscribe to this podcast on the usual directories like iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher, but now we're even on Spotify and YouTube. So don't forget to check us out there. This episode is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel.